Hello, welcome to the live stream. Happy Saturday, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Thank you for spending part of your day with us, uh, part of your weekend with us. Um, so before we get started uh, with our guest today, if you enjoy our Meet the Showrunner series of live stream podcast episodes, be sure to join us next, or short, excuse me, Saturday, August 14th for our Q&A with David Steinberg, showrunner and co-creator of Netflix's No Good Nick. Uh, that is the uh, Saturday, August 14th. And on Saturday, August 28th, we've got a Q&A with Queen Sugar showrunner Anthony Sparks. Both events start at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And to keep up to date with all of our live stream events and episodes, you can find our links at scriptsandscribes.com. And don't forget to drop us a like or leave us a nice comment or review. We do greatly appreciate it. Now on with the show. Today we've got on a Canadian-based writer-creator showrunner whose list of credits include Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, Stargate Universe, and Dark Matter. On his uh, his latest project, he is the co-creator, executive producer, and showrunner of Utopia Falls on Hulu. And there are rumors of a new Dark Matter miniseries, so we'll get into that, I'm sure. Uh, welcome to the show, Joseph Malazzi. Thank you for joining us today, Joe. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Uh, so we're very excited to have you today uh, on the podcast. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, if you are watching in the live stream and you have questions for Joe, please drop them in the chat now and we'll answer them as soon as we can. But before we uh, start uh, answering audience questions, I do have some things that I think everyone would be interested in hearing about. Um, first off, uh, my question would be right from the beginning. How did you get your start writing and when did you decide that it could be a career for you hmm well i, I think we have to go back to the very earliest uh, beginnings which uh which is my love for reading that was mm -hmm. my inspiration i remember reading uh the complete works of william shakespeare in fourth grade it was gifted to me uh by my aunt and then you know reading uh, dante and then discovering comic books uh and you know just falling in love with comic books and this greatly concerned my mother because I went from Shakespeare to comic books. So she kind of found a middle ground in science fiction. And she mm -hmm. would give me uh, Asimov, Clark, Harlan Ellison. And that opened up a whole other world. And so I was reading comic books. I was reading, you know, the classics and I was reading science fiction and I always thought I would love to be a writer, but I never imagined screenwriting. I always thought I would write novels one day. Um, and I wrote my first novel in, in uh, first year of university, and it was terrible. And my, 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 my then writing partner, my future writing partner at the time said, you should, this would make a great script. Mm. And so I actually picked, went and picked up the Sid Field book and, and, and learned proper formatting and, and turned my terrible novel into an equally terrible feature. But that was my first shot. Uh, and it just kind of very, you know, it interested me greatly. And I thought, you know, here's a career opportunity that you know, has opened up. So um, I just reached out to basically 100 different production companies, trying to get my foot in the door as a script reader. And I got, I think, 90, 95 of them never responded. Four of them said, thanks, but no thanks. And one of them actually uh, responded. And they were an animation studio. And they said, well, look, we don't really have need for a script reader. But if you're interested in pitching for one of our shows, this is how it works. We send you the Bible. Uh, and uh, you pitch us ideas, and if we like your ideas, we'll buy one of your ideas, and, and we'll hire you to write the uh, the script. So uh, my first uh, sale was to the busy world, busy world of Richard Scarry, hmm. a, uh, a a short uh, seven minute animated 
a story called Patrick Pig Learns to Talk that had, you know, all the classic Malazzi elements, I think, you know, twists, <laughs> turns, shocks and surprises. Right. Uh, and I remember being very excited at, you know, that first year, I think I made $3,000 uh, writing for animation. And I thought, you know, if I can double that next year, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And then I did. And then every year I would try to double it. And, and so from freelancing for animation, I went into story editing mm -hmm. and and I, I, I managed a develop, uh, development for, for animation company. And then I made the, um, uh, the transition from animation to live action. I did a teen sitcom called Student Bodies for a number of seasons and then ultimately landed on Stargate. Mm -hmm. And Stargate really was my big break. We, you know, my uh, former writing partner, uh, Paul Mully and I ended up uh, landing on the show's fourth season as, as staff writers with the understanding that the show would go two seasons and then we would wrap it up uh, after after uh, season five. But of course, it just kept on getting right. picked up and picked up and, and it was a, a wonderful ride. So that, uh, you know, I, it's, it's funny when, when people ask me, how do you break into the business? And uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jody Hauser, who's a, a fantastic comic book writer. She she basically likens it to escaping from a prison. That once you learn how to do it, then they you know the authorities seal up that that uh, that venue mm. of escape, so you can't do it anymore. Right. Uh, but I always recommend if 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 writers are interested, always uh, you know write your write your spec, uh, write your pilot, and maybe think about you know, getting your foot in the door by writing for animation because they tend to be more right. welcoming of new writers and you actually get paid while you hone your craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Um, now, you obviously have an interest in comics like I do. Uh, we were mm -hmm. talking about it a little before we came on. And you have a, a resume chock full of, of great sci-fi. Um, how is writing sci-fi different than say other genres i mean what are sort of special challenges or considerations do you need to keep in mind when writing for science fiction to be honest with you i think you know i find sci-fi actually more freeing writing mm. for sci science fiction uh because you can you know i look back at sg1 and the types of stories we would tell like one episode would be uh, a horror episode another episode would be like kind of a hard sci-fi episode another one would be actually a humorous episode and you don't really get that freedom in other genre like procedurals or, or or you know legal dramas so in that respect i i, I find science fiction more freeing um, I mean, the biggest challenge, of course, is, is are the technical aspects. Mm -hmm. We need getting the science right, or if not getting the science right, getting the science close. <laughs> right. Which is when we're having good friends or 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 great uh, science uh, science consultants on staff really helps. Mm -hmm. And so, as a showrunner, because uh, a lot of our audience is. Uh, the writers and they're looking to get their first gig on a show or sell a show. But as a showrunner, when you're staffing, sort of what do you look for? Like what catches your eye on the page first? And then secondly, sort of what gets your attention in a staffing meeting? You know, when I read, I prefer, I, I know most showrunners will say the opposite, that they prefer to read specs because they like to see how an individual captures mm -hmm. uh, a, 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 an existing show's character voices. Uh, but I prefer originals. I, I prefer uh, just simply because 
the chances of my necessarily being familiar with that show, uh, you know, isn't necessarily a given. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I just, I, I, I like I I just kind of like the originality of the uh, of, of reading someone's original uh, pilot, the original voices, the, the world they create. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I look for. Um, there are th I have three pet peeves mm, okay, in uh, when it comes to to writing. So mm -hmm. forgive me. No, no. Uh, which I call the three C's, and I always forget at least one of them. But they're conveniences, contrivances, and coincidences. That's it. And uh, if they are in a script in a way that helps our, the protagonist, then it feels like sloppy result writing to me. And mm. so that's kind of a turnoff for me. Whereas if, if, it's, if it's something that, that uh, hinders the protagonist, then I'm willing to give it a pass. Uh, so that's mm. one of the things I, I, I kind of uh, bump on. I do like a script with a sense of humor. And I'm not necessarily saying a comedic script, but... I'm a firm believer in uh, humor going a long way towards allowing audiences, viewers to connect with characters. Right. And it's something I always enjoyed, uh, 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 tonally something I always enjoyed doing on Stargate, something I did on Dark Matter and Utopia Falls. And it's kind of something I look for because I don't think it's an easy thing to do. Mm. So that's what I look for. And then when it comes to meeting, you know, I just say, don't be crazy. Uh, you know, I, I remember one one show I was working on where uh, the executive, the, uh, my fellow executive producers and I were sitting down and meeting with prospective, uh, I think, uh, uh, story editors. And uh, we'd gone through a, a bunch of meetings that had all gone well. And then there was one uh, individual who one of my fellow EPs wasn't able to meet. So he ended up meeting him early. And uh, we ended up meeting him later. And he, this guy came in and he was like on fire from like the get go. And he was just like, you know, at 11 throughout the entire meeting, like just almost kind of frenzied and super animated, which was great, but it was so exhausting. And I just couldn't imagine being in a room with, with, with someone like that. And, and, and that's something to keep in mind. I mean, you're going to be in the room with, with, with someone for, you know, how many hours a day, how many days a week. So, you know, obviously the personality has a lot to do with it. I mean, don't seem crazy. And this guy see, seemed somewhat frantic. Uh, like he had a lot of ideas and, and, you know, after he left, like the other executive producers were like, like they, they actually, I didn't even have to say anything. They were like, I, I can't do it. I, you know, I am not having him in the room. And, uh, and then the first EP who met him uh, initially came in and said, what did you, what did you think? And, and, and we were like, the guy was just like, you know, went from you know zero to eleven with his like, you know, all these crazy ideas, and the EP was like, ah, like crestfallen. You can see it in his face, and I'm like, what? And he was like, I told him to come in and be really animated and have a lot of great ideas. <laughs> uh, so uh, I mean, that, that that's one thing. I mean, you can have a lot of great ideas, but right. um, just dial it dial it back a bit. Right, right, right. Yeah, <clears throat> you don't want to exhaust everyone in the room. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, speaking of of writers' rooms. I know with a lot of writers rooms and I know Utopia Falls shot pre pandemic, correct? Yeah. Uh, going forward, what do you think? Cause I know a lot of writers rooms have been virtual. Some are coming back mm -hmm. hybrid. Some are coming back. Uh, what do you see for the future? Uh, um, that's very tough to say. I mm -hmm. mean, because I ended up delivering the 
uh, Utopia Falls finale, December of 2019. Mm -hmm. And my plan was just to kind of roll into development for a while. And as the pandemic continued, I just took on more and more development work. And, and at this point, I think I, I, I have like nine different projects on my plate just in development. So um, I don't think I will be seeing uh, a writer's room for till at least maybe the end of the year. Mm. Uh, and I mean, from what I hear, they're fine. I just, there's certain aspects of the, of the writer's room that, that, uh, I think would be hard to to necessarily achieve by a Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, this is something that's inconsequential as pacing for one. I mean, you know, I, I, I tend to sort of pace out my idea, kind of circle the room. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, like anything, I think you, you just grow accustomed to it. And, you know, with with the Delta variant out there and the, now the Lambda variant and, and, and what have you, I don't really know how long it's going to take for things to return to normal. Mm -hmm. And for your uh, rooms, for the stuff that you've worked on, and I, I know it, it varies on show to show, which is why mm -hmm. I'm asking, because a lot of shows will be in Los Angeles, but shoot in Toronto or shoot in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Where are your rooms? Where have they been? Are they pretty much in Canada? Uh, they've been in, yeah, they've been in Canada, in Toronto, or mm -hmm. uh, Vancouver. And then I guess this is sort of a question that's in reverse, because oftentimes we'll get questions of showrunners from writers outside of Los Angeles. And they'll say, mm -hmm. do I have to move to L.A. to be a TV writer? Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll often get that from questions from writers from Canada. So for you, do you hire writers from Los Angeles or are you, you hire primarily Canadian-based writers? How does that work on your shows, like, you know, Canadian shows? Although they're, really, they're distributed, obviously, in the U.S. as well. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the production, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. And uh, when you're dealing with tighter productions and Canadian content requirements, mm -hmm. you, by necessity, have to hire as local uh, mm -hmm. as, as possible, just for the, I mean, for the tax credit. So, sure. you know, more often than not, I'm, I'm looking for Canadian writers, uh, Canadian directors uh, and, and Canadian talent. But um, for instance, Stargate was, there was, uh, we had a, a, a bit more money to make the show. So mm -hmm. we, we did use um, the occasional US director, you know, US writers. Uh, so again, it's, it's really production dependent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> Excuse me again. And for um, Canadian-based writers getting mm -hmm. their start, would you recommend that they look for work uh, in Canada first? Or would you recommend that they make the jump to L.A. because there's probably more work, more shows? I don't, I don't know what the Canadian <laughs> market versus the U.S. market in terms of number yeah. of jobs available. This, this is probably <clears throat> going to be a, sort of an unpopular thing to say. Mm -hmm. But I think... Uh, you're probably better off trying your luck in, in LA first. Mm. I mean, you're it, you, you, there, you're in a pretty big pond. Right. There's such a diversity of voices. There's such a diversity of, uh, of programming. Uh, and, and really what, when you're in, in a city like Los Angeles, ch chances are most of the contacts you will be making, most of the friends you make will be in the industry. And, um, mm. you know, agents are, are wonderful. Uh, but if you talk to a lot of people who have agents, they will tell you that it's very rare an agent actually gets you a job. You often, you know, more often than not get the job through the connections you make. Right. And that's a lot harder, frankly, in Canada. Mm. 
and and just there, there's less programming. There 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 are fewer networks, and um, I think they they tend to be kind of more rigid in uh, in their in in their hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, we have actually a number of questions. I do have a few more questions, but I'll try to intersperse them through yeah, this. Sure. We've got a lot of questions here from the chat, and I wanted to start to get to some of them. Uh, let's see here. And I'm sure it looks like there's a mix of questions about Stargate and Dark Matter sure, and, shoot. and uh, uh, writing questions all mixed in here. So we'll see what we got. Um, Alec Brownie asks, what happened to Sarah, Dr. Shaw, and Portia's daughter, Katie, in the alternate universe? Um, in the now, this is a this is a dark matter question. Uh, that's a show that ran on uh, sci-fi and Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still available on and Netflix, was a comic Netflix, book. Three seasons. Yeah, yeah, and it was initially a comic book. Um, in terms of sort of the alternate timeline stories, uh, that's a really a tough one to answer. In that, basically, I didn't really envision going very deeply into the alternate uh timeline i think um who 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 the, dr shaw she mm-hmm. mentioned who else uh let's see we'll, here we'll, it we'll was listen. sarah dr shaw and porter's uh, porsche's daughter katie uh okay sarah um sadly passed away uh porsche's daughter katie is still with um uh, uh, still on, on a remote planet, hidden away, and uh, Doctor Shaw is in stasis. There you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um, Teresa B asks, "Will you be part of a new Stargate series hinted to be in the works?" Ooh, just, I sure hope so. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, that is uh, Brad Wright's baby. Brad Wright, of course, the co-creator of uh, SG One. Atlantis and universe, and he's been hard at work on a fourth Stargate series, or, you know, he was, uh, and then MG, uh, MGM was sold to Amazon. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure they're going to take some time to sort of work out all the kinks. Uh, at which point I'm sure Amazon will proceed with a new Stargate series sooner than later. And, uh, I, I hope it is Brad's, uh, Brad's vision. Uh, of, of uh, for a new uh, fourth Stargate series, and um, again, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know my availability. I don't know um, whether the show will will get a green light. Uh, you know, who Brad will be reaching out to. But if he reaches out to me, I of course I'd be. You know, I'd love to uh, take part. Hopefully, Revisit that old world. Hopefully, Amazon doesn't spend all their money on that Lord of the Rings series. <laughs> it's like five hundred million dollars or something. Yeah, all we need we we need we could do it for like. I mean, half that. Yeah, at least. $250 million an episode would be more than enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, Mookie Mook says, what type of writer's room do you foster? Is it one big writing group in the same room, or do people branch off and write more independently? Uh, I prefer everyone in the same room. So everyone's on the same page. Uh, you know, I I think I run my writer's rooms uh, somewhat differently than a lot of the ones are in your typical writer's rooms. I, I like I said, I, um, I'm i not an early morning guy. I'm not a late uh, night guy. So um, my writer's rooms, you can roll in at like 9, 30, 10, and then you're probably home for dinner. Uh, wow. And I don't really, uh, when it comes to breaking stories, mm-hmm. uh, I don't really blue sky. I, I don't, mm. I mean, I appreciate the detail 
but I kind of, you know, want the writer to, to find a lot of the detail in the script. And so um, my writer's rooms tend to move fairly quickly. Huh. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, we'll, we'll obviously, you know, we'll, we'll break the stories, we'll, you know, we'll beat them out. The writers will go off and, and write their outlines and get their, you know, you know, two drafts of notes and then they'll go to script mm -hmm. and then they'll do their, you know, various drafts. And then once we go in, roll into production, um, you know, uh, I usually don't roll with a writer's room when we go into production. So that just because things get so hectic, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, if, if it's early on uh, enough in the process um, and, and usually the notes that start getting in are really production related. Uh, and I can reach out to the writer and say, you know, you want to take a shot at this. Uh, but otherwise, if we're under the gun, then I will just do the pass. And like I said, at that point, it's really just more production related. You know, we lose a location. Uh, right. The script is short. The script is long. What have you. Mm -hmm. And how much, and I guess it depends on writer per writer, but especially for newer writers, how much rewriting do you tend to do? Again, or is like it you something said, it really, you, you pass it, it off really to a different... You know, a different no, it really depends opera. on on the writer, and mm -hmm. and you know they, uh, it, you know, like like when when we break a story, mm -hmm. usually it's pretty tight. So the rewrites I tend to do are really more voice related, mm. uh, and you know it's it's tougher. I mean, like I, I think back to Stargate, and it was always tough to land new writers on Stargate just because the show has such a rich mythology mm -hmm. and. I would say the character voices were were unique, but it was surprising how um, elusive they were to some writers. And and um, you know, one thing I always say to writers, if they if they fail to sort of land in a room, more often than not, it's, it has really nothing to do with your your talent. It's just you know you were not a good fit for the tone or for the characters, and and that's it. And and you'll probably be better suited for for another show. Um, and so. It, again, it really depends on 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 the on the writer. Um, I mean, on, on Utopia Falls, there were a couple of scripts that I I barely touched, and there mm -hmm. were a couple of scripts that I rewrote significantly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, that's you know that's the job of the showrunner at the end of the day. And again, it probably depends on the writer. But do your lower level writers, your staff mm -hmm. writers and story editors, do they often produce their episodes or go to set for their episodes to work with a, a mid-level or to work on their episodes? Or do they pretty much stay in the writer's room the whole time? Well, like I said, I, I don't usually carry a writer's room into production. However, oh, right, right, right. I am always, I always have really an open door policy and I'm always welcome, uh, you know, welcoming writers to be on set for their own, uh, uh, for their own uh, episode. Hmm. And if they want to come into the editing room with me, I'm happy to invite them into the editing room with me. I was just surprised on on my last series how few really? writers took me up on the offer. Wow, that's... Is, I mean, you know, I, I and and I've I've had other people like you know um, uh, on on Dark Matter. Mm -hmm. uh, there there are times, for instance, the you know our, our receptionist was interested in in production, and and she was kind of part of sort of a, kind of a rotation, and, and said, you know, I would love to learn about production. I'm like, great come and sit in on our, you know, our uh, prep meetings. So she sat in all the prep meetings and, uh, you know, she came to set and then she sat in on a couple of the editing sessions and, 
you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, you know, it, it, it just, I was surprised by kind of a lack of, uh, yeah, that's surprising interest. to me. But maybe, maybe it was actually, they were busy, but I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, that is interesting. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, Luann Athade, hopefully I'm pronouncing your right, name right, Luann. Um, there is any talk about creating an animated 3D show for Stargate? Uh, you know, I've heard rumors, uh-huh. but it's nothing that, you know, Brad has heard about or, and, and look, I mean, as I said, sooner or later, Amazon is going to do a new series. I don't know what you know form it will take. It w- I would be disappointed, frankly, if it was an animated series. I think the fans would be interested in a live action series. And I think Brad would offer the best of both worlds. It would be a show that would bring aboard new viewers, You know, a show that, that you wouldn't have to know Stargate to enjoy it. Mm. And at the same time, you'd be able to sort of offer Easter eggs to existing fans. And so it would be a show that would bridge the gap between old fandom and new fandom where they're, you know, whereas if they were going to do something like an animated series from someone who was not connected to the series, you know, and potentially uh, reboot the concept and wipe out what was like 300 episodes of, uh, of Canon, I would imagine the fans might be kind of upset. And, and in this, you know, the social media age, I think you would want the, the, the the existing fandom to get behind the new project and help support it rather than you know right off the bat start mm-hmm. uh slagging it but i mean i'm not a decision maker <laughs> uh let's see here the next question um mookie mick has another question do you have a preference for a single cam or multi-cam shows do you think the writing changes in any way for each well uh, I, I've always worked multi-cam shows, so so single-cam shows. Uh, um, I don't really have uh, any experience with. Gotcha. Um, so I would say, yeah. Uh, I skipped a couple actually. Mookie Mc also says, "What is the most common problem or challenge in creating an engaging sci-fi pilot script?" In terms of, I mean. I think the biggest challenge is coming up with that idea, coming up with, I mean, I, I look back at, at the pilots that resonated with me and that obviously they're character driven. That's a cliche, but it's true. Um, something I learned on Stargate, people tune in for the hook, but they stay for the characters, right? So you want to make the characters engaging. But one of my favorite pilots is the pilot to the shield. And I don't know if you've watched mm, it, yeah. but that ending, mm-hmm. it's such a holy shit ending that right. you don't see coming and just turns the entire kind of sort of world on its head. And when I set out to write dark, the pilot for Dark Matter, you know, we start off with a mystery of these people who wake up on a ship with no memories who, who they are, how they got on board. And at the end of the, the, the episode, they, they discover that, that the worst of the worst are criminals, cutthroats, murderers. You know, where are you going to go from here? So, I mean, that's a challenge. If you can find an idea that just lands in 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 those you know the, 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 that 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 close up busy a premise with a great hook but an even greater turn at the end of the pilot mm-hmm. that just kind of flips the concept on its head uh, and surprises the audience then you know it, 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 it's so easy to pitch but it's a pitch that I think grabs executives mm-hmm. no, because 100%. everyone loves to be surprised yeah 
Yeah. And I, I, it was different, but I would say a similar thing with that, that really caught me was the pilot for CSI. I don't know if you saw the pilot or read the pilot for CSI. No. And I don't want to spoil it for people, mm-hmm. but the ending of that, that pilot, you're like, what just happened? You know, it mm-hmm. totally turns you on your head and it's incredibly well written. I can see why it got bought. I mean, yeah. um, and it has nothing, the concept in and of itself was, you know, sort of worked and I think it was, it was a great selling point. But what mm-hmm. happened in that pilot episode at the very end was, yeah, if you haven't read this pilot to CIS or CSI, excuse I, me, you should. Um, I will track it down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. basically it comes down from macro to micro, right? Basically, yeah. big concept. But just think of how, you know, that that pilot will end. And then when you're, you're out there pitching, think of how your first season will end in a way that basically, you know, again, um, you kind of kind of subverts the audience expectations. In the case of Dark Matter, in at the end of the pilot, they find out they're 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 criminals. Right. And the entire first season is we peel the onion on their backstories and they try to sort of be better individuals mm-hmm. and ultimately discover that one of them is a mole and it ends the season ends with the reveal of the mole, which is a shock, and then them being carted off to prison, which I think is an appropriate uh, ending to, uh, you know, to the first season. Yeah. Um, and I, I wasn't mentioning you had to take a look at the CSI file. You, no, actually, but no, I, I think it, now the, the, I'm, the I'm intrigued. Listeners. I'm intrigued yeah. because I, I, I always love to be surprised because it rarely happens. Yeah, no, it surprised me. But uh, uh, let's see here. Um Jonas says, uh, what do you think about fan fiction? Good, bad, or maybe depends? Uh, I am legally not permitted to read uh, fan mm. fiction. It's just something I've really we adopted way back sure. on, you know, uh, uh, on Stargate. But uh, I love the fact that fans love the show enough to create their own kind of alternate worlds and alternate stories. So I am 100% in support of uh, fan fiction, even though I... Uh, do not read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's great to have that sort of community and, and yeah. loyal uh, supporters and things who are so invested in, in your world that they want yes, to exactly. help create. Yeah, And I think that's very special and sort of unique to sort of sci-fi and fantasy. You don't often see, uh, I don't think, I've never really looked up like Law & Order fan fiction, I that <laughs> exists, but... I'm um, sure it does. Maybe, yeah. yeah. I could be wrong. It might, actually. Um Let's see. Alec Brownie uh, asks, did Rio, Boone, Das, Corso, and Griff all know about Portia's uh, Nanites pre-mind wipe? And did Rio, Boone, Corso, Wexler, and Tash all know about them on the alt crew? Uh, this is a uh, another Dark Matter question. Yep. Uh, the answer to the first uh, part is yes. Her crew knew that she was enhanced. And the answer to the second part is no. The alt crew did not know. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Mookie has Mookie says uh, you have worn many hats. What role has been most rewarding for you, producer, showrunner, writer? Oh, that's a really tough one. I mean, I would have to say showrunner, simply because you know I, I you know I tell the story all the time that when I first started on Stargate, mm-hmm. we were looking to cast and we were running through, you know, so often happens our, our casting director will send us a list of, of uh, talent. And uh, I pointed at an actor and I suggested, Hey, how about this individual? And Brad just, uh, Brad Wright, who's a, the uh, co-showrunner at the time, just kind of looked at me and said, uh, LTS. I was like, LTS, what's LTS? And he's like, life's too short. 
Uh, and it was kind of an adage that kind of they live by. I joined in season four, and by that point, the production was a uh, SG one, and the production was a very well oiled machine. Um, he had kind of a no asshole policy. And, Good policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so you know, it, Stargate was tough. I mean, I, I remember actually uh, for a couple of seasons we were actually producing forty episodes of television uh, a year, which wow. is crazy. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, everyone had each other's backs and it was a positive working environment. And I ended up going from Stargate to another production, which I won't name, where it was the exact opposite. Mm. And and um, I think my writing partner and I went in kind of naive, expecting a Stargate-like uh, atmosphere where everybody would support each other. And it just was not that. It was people were actively throwing each other under the bus and, wow. and we were kind of eaten alive. And it was a great learning experience for me because after that, I was like, uh, I just will not suffer fools. Hmm. Uh, and, it's, and it's LTS. So um, after, when I did Dark Matter, uh, it, you know, I created the same environment or, you know, fosters the same environment that we had on, on, on Stargate. So one of the things I'm most proud of, besides the fact that, you know, the cast and crew, it, it, I keep in touch with them uh, all the time. And, and I know that if I get another show, and I reach out to them, they will, you know, drop what they're doing. Although I wouldn't ask them to drop what they're doing uh, to come and come and, 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 and work with me. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm especially proud of, of those moments where guest actors or, or directors come on the show and after they wrap, they say, you know, this is one of the best uh, onset environments I've ever worked on. And, and just that they come away with kind of really positive uh vibe from mm -hmm. from the production and it just seems like a cliche but it's it's i think i think it's kind of atypical in the industry because you'll always have like a couple of potheads and right. and uh and often it's it starts at the top and so you know if you're at the top your job is to ensure that uh you kind of tap down those hotheads and if you can't tap them down mm -hmm. then uh, you can excise them from the production right no, and I've I've heard again, not naming names. I've heard of showrunners who are very mild mannered and very uh, genial, mm -hmm. but like a hot headed number two, somebody mm -hmm. who yells and throws things just because they don't want to be the bad guy, but they want mm -hmm. the bad guy, and they think that's necessary for to motivate yeah. the crew. And, yeah. and staff. I, I personally, I think that's nonsense. I think you can be yeah. genial and still be firm about mm -hmm. what you need. And, no, absolutely. And I think, yeah. And I, I think you, your department heads and your writers and your directors respect you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you obviously you're not a pushover, but, you know, you have your opinions and you, you know, and you stick to your guns, but you can, you know, obviously be collaborative as well. Right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Lori Steinle, Lori Steinle uh, says, Joe, what is your favorite project currently in development? I don't know what you can talk about, but uh, you know, like I said, you... I've got like eight or nine projects in development. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you know, it, it's it's tough. It's not like naming your favorite child because that's that's always easy. Uh, picking your favorite project is uh, is a little tougher. Right. Uh, I would say I'm, I've been working on this um, uh, this series called Timescape, hmm. which is kind of a sci-fi comedy. Um, sort of Back to the Future meets Doctor Who. Oh, I love it. Uh, a a sci-fi. Where, where can I watch this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, tag uh, tag Netflix. Ask them. Yeah. Uh, so basically, we're we're out with it now. 
that that's one of the 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 projects in you know in in, in the kind of the forefront it's it, you know i've got a uh, uh the bible and i've got actually two scripts wow uh, you know uh done and, and a third one in kind of an outline outline form so basically we're going out with it and and i think it's interesting sort of what um what i think executives think mm-hmm. viewers like sci-fi viewers like and what sci-fi viewers actually like hmm. uh I, I i think you know shows like star trek and, and stargate uh have just kind of resonated for so long because you know i go back to the concept of family it's 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 kind of a, a science fiction uh with heart uh about you know it's character driven it's about kind of friendships relationships and there's that underlying sense of humor it's the type of sci-fi i like to write mm-hmm. uh but executives seem to like kind of the darker stuff uh that doesn't do as well but i don't know interesting yeah. we'll see though yeah and for a sh- for a, a streamer like netflix how does mm-hmm. where you're based affect it like is there a canadian netflix that you go to versus just netflix mm-hmm. in the u.s or is it just going to netflix period and then you pitch it as a canadian based show or no, there, they say come there to LA? A canadian yeah there's a canadian oh, okay. number of netflix but i've never dealt with them gone dealt with them i usually deal with the u.s netflix and right. yeah i mean um what i think i bring to the table is the um possibility of shooting in canada mm. with the exchange rate with the tax credit the sure. fact that i'm an experienced showrunner 400 hours of television to my credit little, little experience uh, yeah, yeah yeah uh and I, I i can run a tight production and ensure that the money ends up on mm-hmm. screen um and so you know that that's hopefully attracted enough from a production and you, you just have you know then it just becomes my job to really step up and, and mm. present a a compelling uh, series idea as opposed to being a U.S. based producer who takes his production to or her production to Canada to shoot for yeah text. again, but I mean it's yeah. it's it's really more for uh, you know it comes down to sort of uh, budgetary sure no, especially absolutely. if you if you got like a very tight budget mm-hmm. uh, it, you know your money goes a little further but right. then again I mean it, it really depends I mean on the type of show you're 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 shooting um, you know obviously the city the you know your your locations are very much uh are as much a character in your series as 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 your cast so uh let's see here uh d carson asks what happened to the destiny will we see them return in the future in a future stargate series yeah one of the saddest moments in stargate history is that last shot of the destiny jumping into uh uh ftl and leaving us behind so, I mean, in my mind, they're still in stasis and it was just kind of a perfect ending to the series mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, maybe somewhere down the line, if Brad gets that series, that new series picked up, it will give us the opportunity to go back and find out what happened to the Destiny crew. So in my mind, they're still on ice, so to speak, uh, so long as uh, the Stargate franchise has been in the hiatus mm. and remains in hiatus. Right. Uh, let's see. And tool asks what does brad Wright like to read as a writing sample you know that would be a question for brad uh yeah definitely a question for brad he's a big sci-fi fan by the way so uh, i would steer you in that direction right that's good to know uh and you had mentioned having comedy inside you know not slapsticky comedy but comedic moments in in your uh, or just a, a a a 
a sense of humor. Right. I mean, like I said, you know, it does. It shouldn't be a comedic script. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you look at um, like the shows, I mean, Sopranos, for instance, is not a comedy. Sure. And yet, I think it had some of the funniest moments in in television. Right. I, I, you know, and and you know, it it just worked within that kind of um, you know uh, within the world it created. So, I mean, I think you can find there are opportunities for humor in. Mm -hmm. You know, no matter what genre you have to be writing in. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I'm going to turn the question on you. What do you like to read as a writing sample? Is there? I mean, do you read comedies? Uh, you obviously do drama, but you. Mm, I do not read comedies. I would prefer. I mean, I I, I work in the one hour. Right. Do you read uh, non-sci-fi stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I will. I will definitely procedurals? read procedurals. Uh, yeah. I. I don't love procedurals as much. I think in terms of procedurals, I think you really have to do something different mm -hmm. to to kind of wow me. Stand Whereas out, yeah. in science fiction, I think it's a bit easier because you have, uh, I think, the kind of a a, a bigger sandbox That's to true. play in. Right. Uh, let's see here. Uh... It looks like Riley Miller says, how did you get into K-pop? Uh, what types oh. of groups or artists drew your attention first and why? You know, this is actually very funny because one of the projects I'm working on with a major uh, music label is a science fiction uh, series with heavy K-pop elements. Wow. And um, yeah, I, I've, I've completed a Bible. I've completed a pilot. I think I have one more draft of the pilot or polish to do uh and we're actually um going to be talking to an executive in seoul uh hopefully in the coming weeks about attaching a k-pop group to wow. the uh yeah as as eps to the production so uh before we take it out um you know i blame my wife she was a big huna fan uh and she would play huna constantly constantly and after a while you know just kind of the songs kind of grew on me so i started to explore and i uh I discovered, uh, you know, my beloved 21 and uh, uh, Luna. I know basically there are a lot of uh, uh, orbits out there who, who kind of uh, uh, like my, uh, my, uh, my Luna tweets. Um, you know, they're very, very interesting. I mean, they're, they, they, you know, I, I, Luna is, is, is an interesting example. Just, you know, you know, I like the music and the world they create, they craft through their music videos. Uh, is so mythologically rich and interesting. You know, I, I think I, I, I tweeted something like, hey, you know, uh, Blockberry Entertainment is their management company. I'm ready to do a, a Luna sci-fi series and uh, ended up getting something ridiculous, like, I don't know, like uh, uh, 25,000 likes and, and, and a bunch of retweets. Uh, so I'm working my, you know, just so orbits, you know, I'm working my way there. I'm going to do this series to sort of establish my footprint in the K-pop, my cred mm. in the K-pop community, and then uh, hopefully uh, tackle that uh, Luna series someday. <laughs> uh, Riley also asks, how do you keep track of your different projects and characters? Do you do so by hand in notebooks or do you prefer a file system on a computer? Uh, neither, I hate to say it, but it's all in my head. I mean, aside from what I write, mm. I think, you know, you, you kind of, you know, I mean, I, you know, I know the difference between uh, my characters in Timescape 
and the characters of, uh, for instance, um, Powder Mage, the Powder Mage trilogy, which is this uh, fantasy series that I'm adapting, mm-hmm. uh, or um, one of the things I'm actually working on now is 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 a uh, a take on a classic sci-fi series. They're all very distinct. Uh, you know, they re- reside in my in 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 uh, different pockets in the back of my mind. So that's how I, I keep track. Hmm, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm already confused just by hearing a few of your th- your shows, your <laughs> things in development. It's like, wow, how do you keep track of all that? Yeah, the K-pop sci-fi thing always throws people. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't expect that, but that's kind of cool. Um, and it's certainly timely, right? Uh, let's see here. Alec Brownie says, is Alt-Wexler slightly nicer because uh, primary Wexler threatened to rape five in front of one and it'd be hard to accept Alt-Wexler joining the crew in season four if it'd be in his character to do the same? Yes. My answer to you is yes. Um, you know, that's an, you know, he just, Alec, Alex? Uh, Alec, anyway, yep. yeah, Alec. Um, is referring to a character played by the amazing Ennis Esmer, uh, who was on Blind Spot, who we cast for a two-episode gig in season one, and his character is killed off. Mm-hmm. But he was so good. The beauty of science fiction is that you can always bring characters back. So we brought him back as an alt version of himself. Um, and he's one of those actors that, you know, it, 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 the more you give him, the more interesting his character becomes so the more you write for him and um there were plans to actually make him a, a permanent member of the crew in season four mm-hmm. uh so in, in much the same way that our crew are different from their alt versions the wexler uh alt, alt wexler was very different from the wexler of uh, our universe you would have liked him more he's a guy you could have gone out for drinks with i think uh let's see here uh Mugi says do you have a pet project or an idea that has not seen the light of day if so what has held it back which i'm assuming either something you have in development which one's your favorite or uh, maybe something you don't have in development yet but would love to at some point yeah i mean it's tough to answer that question i mean in terms of light of day i mean Mm -hmm. um, what i term light of day is uh actually a green light yeah uh, so that we roll into production so i mean that's all of them and that applies to uh, all eight or nine development projects i'm working on it's funny i i uh you know i was invited to a it was kind of like a zoom room a re- regular zoom room with uh, kind of kind of uh authors and mm-hmm. and uh just incredibly talented people amazing people um and every week you just talk about sort of what you're working on and and you know they would basically be working on you know i hate to say it, but but um projects of substance hmm. projects that people would you know people would read or see whereas i'm working on development now and um and you know even though for the most part i'm getting paid for 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 the stuff i'm working on development on if these things are not green lit then they just reside with me right for <laughs> I me mean, and you know we would always go around the horn and say oh so what are you working on and after a while i just I couldn't continue going to the Zoom rooms just because, you know, it was amazing what everyone was working on, but I just felt like everything I was working on uh, was insubstantial in a mm. way. And and you know, I mean, it's it's hard work and you're writing scripts and everything, but I mean, really, the brass ring is that green light to series. So 
that's what that and that's why basically I'm juggling eight to nine different projects because you never know what's going to land. Yeah. So they're all, all eight or nine of them are, are very different in various stages of development and we'll see who knows what the future holds. And it's so hard just, to even get one show made that if you're not juggling multiple yeah. balls. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're not buying one lottery ticket. You're buying nine. Good luck. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, Mookie says, "Oh, be sure to give this live stream a thumbs up, everyone." So thank you, uh, Mookie, thank for you. that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and he also says, "Do you work all year doing some sort of steps in the process, or do you get a hiatus and rest at any point?" That's a good question. I I do not rest. No sleep uh, for the. No, it is it. It's funny because. One of the things I was talking about recently is the fact that I'm, I've always been an avid reader mm. and and I go through like 100 books a year. Wow. And then once the pandemic hit, mm. I kind of stopped reading and I haven't been reading in a while. And I finally put my finger on it. And it's because when I'm in production, I know what needs to be done. I'm hired to do a job and that's the job I do. I'm not working on other projects. That's my job. Right. But once I deliver a script or once you know, if I'm waiting for, you know, the next step in the production or, 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 uh, or, or pre-production, I have those windows of opportunities. And at that time I can relax and I can actually sit down and read because I feel like I've earned it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I'm in development, you know, I feel like there's really no downtime. If I'm not working on this project, then I really should be working on another project because you know, I need to fill my time with something productive, something that will end end up with me hopefully landing a uh, a gig, you know, a, a a new series, which will in turn allow me to, you know, uh, be comfortable enough to take the time off to read or what have you. So, I mean, it, it's funny because previously one of the reasons I liked reading was because I felt as though um, I was uh, kind of accomplishing something as well in a way it's kind of you're 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 researching so for instance the powder mage trilogy was a fantasy series uh that i read that i loved that you know when i ended up teaming up with a jb sugar uh producer a local producer here and he was like you know send me some you know ip and that was one of the one i sent him he loved it and so you know mission accomplished you know i reading for me is productive whereas something like video games unless i'm working in the video game industry i i wouldn't feel comfortable you know spending time playing video games mm-hmm. i wouldn't say i'm a workaholic but i just i feel it sort of sounds like you're in that neighborhood yeah. anyway um uh let's see here uh Aaron blake says you often hire or have hired people to consult about the signs for the shows stargate mm-hmm. and dark matter I don't know if that was oh, a... He's talk, talking about science consultants? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Amika McKinnon was our science consultant on uh, on Stargate. Uh, and then author John Scalzi was our uh, consultant on Stargate Universe. Oh. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, yes. And I guess a twofold question. What sort of... Uh, and I guess it depends on the show, but mm-hmm. what sort of input does the average... Not I shouldn't say average. What does does the traditional uh, uh, story uh, uh, science consultant have on the uh, the show and the scripts themselves? And do any of them actually transition to writing 
at any point? Um, I, in terms of the latter, uh, the uh, latter question, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, John Scalzi, we hired him because he's a brilliant author, sure. a science fiction author. So, uh, and and actually, I did offer him a script, but I, you know, I don't think he was comfortable at at, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, from a sort of a a, a, a science advisor perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's someone I could always reach out to, for instance, uh, if, if if I'm in a situation where, you know, we're looking for, uh, you know, a scenario where, you know, um, you know, um, a sun is going nova, or we're looking for uh, plasma signatures in a in a in a dead, uh, a derelict uh, spaceship graveyard. I have some questions about that. I would, you know, for instance, reach out to them, and they would, you know, give me input, or they would throw some ideas my way. Um, they also read scripts and vet scripts in, in oh, very much the same way that the military, the Air Force, mm. would vet the scripts on SG-1. And um, and really, more than anything, it's just a matter of flagging um, mistakes or just letting us know, you know, you're taking a lot of creative license with uh, with this. I mean, right. I like, uh, John Scalzi on, on Universe, you know, pointing out. You know, by this point, you're probably running out of bullets. Not necessarily a science aspect, but a sort of a logic aspect. Right. And then, so we had we wrote in a scene where one of our characters, uh, Peter Klamas's character, mm-hmm. was making bullets. Uh, Mookie says, "What was your first official writing credit, and how much of it got edited?" Um, that would have been the uh, the busy world of Richard Scarry, Patrick Pig learns mm-hmm. to talk, a seven minute short, and uh, I don't believe it was edited at all. Wow, yeah, wow. What about uh, in terms of like, for example, your first uh, credit on Stargate, for example, when you were you've yeah, obviously written uh, a lot of Stargate, you from yeah. beginning to end. The the first script we wrote was a, a script called uh, Scorched Earth for the show's fourth season. It was our it was a script that essentially landed us a staffing gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember we 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 got on the phone with, we, we sent a bunch of pinch, pitches, well, by, by bunches, I think we were, there were five, I think three to five is a perfect number of, you know, pitches to send, one pagers. Uh, and they liked, I think, two or three of them, but they said, let's start with this one. We got on the phone with them and kind of hashed out what the story would be. We went off and wrote the outline. They gave us notes, we revised the outline. They gave us another set of notes, we revised the outline, and then they gave us the go ahead to go to script. And uh, apparently they've been looking for staff writers for quite a while, but hadn't had much luck. Really? And um, and Rob Rob Cooper, the the co-exec uh, producer, uh, the uh, co-showrunner at the time, that he and Brad were on their way to Hawaii for a golf trip, and they only had one copy of the script. And uh, and Brad was like, you know, he's like, oh, I you know, I don't think I can read this script because if it's bad, I'm not going to have a good vacation. Oh, right. so Rob, okay, I'll read it. And he read the script. And he's like, oh, you, you, you'll have a good vacation, and nice. uh, and that's how we ended up on uh, on staff for SG One Sports season. No, that's awesome. You helped his vacation. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and and Small and friends. his problem and his problem finding yeah. a staff writer. Or he would have had a terrible time in Hawaii. <laughs> Uh, let's see. D. Abrams says your Zoom room reminds me of a modern day version of Tolkien's Inklings meetings. I don't know what that is, but that sounds cool. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Is that a compliment? I think I think it is. I think, it is. I think if it, it isn't, is. how dare you? <laughs> uh, any association with Tolkien, I think, is pretty good, right? Yeah. That's kind of cool. Um, so. See, Alex Brownie says, in that vein, is there a reason Alt Corso has the same hairstyle as one instead of 
primary Corso's hairstyle, because both were gunning for Boone, and if uh, Wexler can be nicer, Moss could be less nice. That's a very good point. Hmm. And uh, answer to the first question, there is no real reason why uh, the hair was, uh, you know, people change their, their, yeah. their hair all the time. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Oron Blake says, Destiny's Faster Than Light tech is, no, is so unique. Who came up with that idea or was, more, or was it more a team effort? Um, you, th- that is all Brad and Robert in, uh, Brad, Brad Wright and Robert Cooper were the co-creators of Stargate Universe. They created that, that, that world, those characters, uh, and the technology specific mm. to that series. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, uh, collaborating with uh, probably the visual effects supervisor, uh, Mark Savala, who's brilliant and still in Vancouver, uh, supervising on uh, other sci-fi productions. Very cool. Um, let's see here. Uh, Mookie says, has the downturn in using freelance writers hurt a production? It seems like that pathway for new writers has been closed down. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been closed down for a while, I think, because I remember when I first got into the business many years ago, that was a thing, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really, you know, uh, happen anymore. So, I mean, I don't I, I don't feel it as as kind of a change, really, because I think it's kind of a transition that happened, right. you know, in my mind, like many, many, many years ago. I think it has a lot to. At least I don't know what the Canadian Writers Guild rules are, but I know mm-hmm. in the the, the WGA here, uh, I think it's due to episode orders. So with a twenty two mm-hmm. episode order, I think in the the uh, the contract you had to have three freelance episodes, and you'd normally give one to the writer's assistant, or at least if they yeah. were qualified, and maybe mm-hmm. one to the showrunner's assistant, but maybe not, depending. Uh, and then mm-hmm. so you'd have one or two left over that you would try to find a writer to come in, maybe a diversity yeah. hire, somebody to fill that slot. Uh, whereas with 10 episodes, I don't know what the commitments, maybe it's one, maybe it's, you know, hmm. so that you give that to the writer's assistant. So there are freelance, but they usually go internally yeah. as opposed to I, going outwardly, I think. I personally have found that uh, freelance scripts are kind of tougher. Hmm. Uh, yeah. for, just for, for me as a showrunner, having to sort of rewrite uh, someone, I, I think I'd, I'd rather do a pass on 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 someone's script if they've actually been in the room, right? And they've kind of you know they know the history of of whatever that season that we've been working on. Mm-hmm. Rather than bring someone in kind of uh, cold, and it's 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 no knock on them or you know on, on their abilities. It's just that you know if you're not privy to certain information, you're going to get a lot of stuff wrong. Right, well, then you're going to get stuff right. Right. Yeah, and they already know which ideas you guys have already, you know, yeah. written yeah. off, and they're not writing those and pitching you right. those ideas because they right. already know you've done it and didn't work, or yeah. they, you know, you're not interested in going that direction. Uh, let's see here. Um, LDL sixty one says, "Scorched Earth was one of my favorite SG one episodes." Well, there you go. Bless your bless your heart. It was kind of a controversial episode. It's kind of funny. It's it's the first the first uh, it was our first hour of Stargate and the first, our first experience with, uh, with, uh, the, uh, double-edged sword of, uh, fandom passion. I think there's a, there's a point where, uh, Daniel Jackson, one of the, one of our characters is up on a ship and, uh, O'Neill, our other character detonates a, an explosive that 
would have downed the ship and killed him. And uh, a lot of fans were kind of outraged that he would have uh, mm. made that decision. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, that was uh, it was a it was a uh, a memorable one for uh, for me too. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I just have a question. What do newer or emerging writers often do that makes it sort of harder for them to land their first staffing job? I mean, how do sort of emerging writers sort of sabotage themselves if they do? Is there any sort of um, common thread between? I mean, there are two things I kind of look at. One is script and one is personality. I mean, as I said, you're going to be in the room with a person. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're crazy, no one wants to be in the room with a crazy person. I hate to say it. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, uh, hope, you know, hopefully someone that, you know, is, 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 and it's not really that hard. Just, just be your, your regular affable self when you're, you're, you come into the meeting. Um, on the other hand, just write a, a knockout pilot script, uh, because you're, you're up against so many other pilot scripts that the one that stands out is probably the one that's going to get the gig. Gotcha. And then sort of expanding on that, what are some things that a staff writer will do or say, or in their first season on a show that mm -hmm. might cause you to reconsider bringing them back for a second season? Should you get picked up? I love people coming in with ideas. I love people who believe in their ideas. Um, but there comes a point where in the room, we decide we don't want to go that way mm -hmm. and we're going to go in a different direction. And I have had writers who just persist with the ideas past their, uh, in-room expiration date. Right. So that's the big one. Uh, another big one is not delivering a solid first draft. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you can rectify that if you deliver like a knockout second draft and address the issues. But strangely, I find that um, maybe not so strangely, usually a writer who, who delivers a weak first draft uh, will delivers often a marginally better second draft. Oh. But um, uh, again, I mean, it's, it's, you know, again, it comes down to script. What are the protocols, uh, on, in a writer's room for a staff writer, for example, who has a first draft of an episode assigned to them, mm -hmm. taking it to another writer before the showrunner, like in a mid-level, like a co-producer or mm -hmm. something and saying, hey, would you take a look at this and let me know mm -hmm. what you think before giving it to you and mm -hmm. in, in, in possibly marginal condition? Uh, yeah, I, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. Whatever makes, you know... Uh, a writer comfortable mm. if, if they're they they'd like to pass it by someone first that that's fine um of course the the uh the things someone else may flag in a script may not necessarily sure. be the same things i right. flag in a script but i mean certainly i would have no problem with you know if, if a writer would feel comfortable reaching out to someone to give it a read right i mean sure why not and would it break protocol for someone to, because of the proprietary information, mm -hmm. uh, storylines, things like that, to go outside of the room to potentially another writer on another show that they're friends with or something like that, or their manager or their agent or whoever? I, I, I have a very different attitude from a lot of 
productions. Mm-hmm. I think showrunners, when it comes to stuff like that, I'd be perfectly fine with it. Mm. I, um, you know, all of my productions and, and actually through my blog as well, I do it a lot. Uh, when we're in production, I'm, I will take behind the scenes picks. And unless it's a spoiler, you know, I, 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 I tell the cast and crew that they should free, free, feel free to post on social media. Um, That's great. And, and just because it gets the fans excited, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm often sort of reminded of, of I think it was Godzilla, where um, they were, um, uh, I think it was the Roland Emmerich Godzilla, where they kept the look of the creature under wraps. Mm-hmm. And so they would not release anything. They didn't really release the toy line. They weren't going to release the toy line until after the, the, the movie dropped. And apparently something like 80% of a um, a sort of a toy line, like like a tie-in toy line. Sales. Uh, The sales are made before the movie's released. Mm -hmm. The movie was released and it bombed Mm -hmm. and the toys basically didn't sell. Um, So, I mean, I always had that in the back of my mind. I mean, why, you know, at that point, Mm -hmm. once you're, you're, you're posting, posting stuff like, you know, ship designs or what have you Mm -hmm. after the episode airs, you're just kind of preaching, you know, to the choir, right? So, you know, you're, you're not going to necessarily interest new fandom. Whereas if you, you know, get the ball rolling and sort of you, 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 you build kind of that anticipation in yeah. the early goings. Um, I think that kind of helps your launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mookie says, is there an added value in ba- uh, basing a show on an existing IP, like a series of books? Is it an easier sell in any way? I would say absolutely. Yes. Uh, when I got my start in the business, I mean, one of the, one of the positions I held was that I was a director of development at an animation studio, mm. and I quickly learned that um, amazing original ideas were often dismissed in favor of truly mediocre IPs, or intellectual properties, and uh, it's something I find like sometimes like I'll, I'll hear about oh they're going to be doing a series based on on this IP, and mm-hmm. I think really, uh, but. And and but it's it's something I, I hear a lot of the time when you go into pitch. They're always like, "Well, do you have IP? We're looking for IP." And the thinking, of course, is it's an established property, mm-hmm. uh, so it's proven itself. Although, I mean, I think it's honestly debatable um, how you uh, you know you know how you define prove itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it's it's something that uh, and and I mean, it's it's something that I was very mindful of when we went out with Dark Matter. I mean, Dark Matter was originally a pilot and I just kind of wanted to tell my story. So we ended up pitching Dark Horse. And my, in my mind, is like, if it becomes a TV series, fantastic. Uh, if it doesn't come, become a TV series, fantastic. I'll be able to tell my story in comic book form. Right. But the fact that it was a comic book was an established IP. Jay Firestone, who was the president of Prodigy Pictures, was able to go out and pitch it. And he had the comic book. And the comic book uh, really offered a visual representation of the show and he was able to sell it a because it was an IP but also he had the comic book that that he could present uh so you know you know definitely very much if you're if 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 you you got the rights to an IP I would uh I would uh, definitely look to uh to shop that now we often get asked by writers who have a script whether it's a screenplay or a pilot who are considering uh, either adapting it into a novel or creating a graphic novel or comic series mm-hmm. based on it, thinking that it's an easier route. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted to get your take as someone who has gotten a comic book made. Granted, you had legitimate, lots of legitimate credits mm-hmm. in the entertainment industry, uh, going to someplace like Dark Horse and getting published, which is not, I think, the case for a lot mm-hmm. of uh, emerging writers out there who have those sort of connections and also that yeah. resume that backs up a meeting with you know Dark Horse to get a comic yeah. book made. But would you advise or recommend, do you think it's a good plan for somebody to self-publish or whatever they have to do to get a comic book IP made, even if it's just living digitally or whatever. I I think it, it certainly helps. Mm. I mean, basically to establish that fan base early on or those eyes early on, I will say that I chose a comic book route because I'm a fan of comic books. I'm a huge, I have huge respect for comic book writers and artists and letterers and colorists. Um, I, I, don't think comic books should be just a means to right. sort of a trying to land a TV series. I think uh, comics are their own wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, as I said, I, I, you know, I went in with the mindset that, you know, I wanted to make a comic book series and anything beyond that would be gravy. And it, and sure. it was. Um, so, you know, and, and, and I very much, I mean, if, if someone told me, you know, you can, you can do a, a comic book series. You can write for like Fantastic Four. You can do your own original series, but you know, with the the, the sole rule being it'll never be a TV series, I would absolutely still do it. Absolutely, because like I said, comic books are, are its own wonderful thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Alec Brownie asks, "What would Moss have done when they actually reached the <laughs> mining planet if there had been no mind wipe?" I'm sad we didn't get to see one join the Outlaw crew more deliberately in season two, like six. Yeah, uh, he would have exacted his revenge on uh, Boone. Is what he would have done at some point in the uh, in the, uh, yeah in, uh, during their mission. I like the, it made it look like an accident. I like the fact that there's a good mix of writing questions mixed in <laughs> with uh, uh, Stargate and, and Dark Matter it's questions. Dark matter. It's nice. Yeah. Um, Marcus Aurelius says, uh, sorry if this was addressed already. Do you have any thoughts on survival jobs? As in, is it worth my time to get a job as a creative development assistant or secretary if I want to get staffed? I I don't think it's a bad idea at all. I mean, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, um, you know, I, I've always been receptive to people working sort of in, you know, on the production, be they, you know, whatever. I mean, either, you know, assistants, receptionists or you know, actual writers uh, to come in and kind of learn about, uh, you know, the craft. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can't speak for other showrunners, but I, I, I think it's a good idea more than anything, just because it it it, uh, it allows you to make connections. Mm-hmm. And I think that is super important. I don't know if I have any examples of specifically creative development assistant or production secretary or mm-hmm. anything like that making the jump to staff writer. But for those listeners or watchers out there, if you look up, I think it's Matt Pitts, who is a co-EP on Westworld. He actually tells the story how he started off as a dry, a delivery driver for, I think it was Technicolor or Deluxe, one of the two, one of the film labs. And that led him to meet someone who gave him a job somewhere. I can't remember all the details, but it's if you listen to the podcast, 
um, which led to him becoming a PA, which led him to getting into uh, the production office, which led him to getting, you know, just basically it, it, he broke that way. So he did start off as something completely ancillary, but because mm-hmm. he was still in the industry, he met people who, you know, he got moved into the right direction. Uh, and I think Emma Dudley, who is a writer as well, uh, you could check out her podcast episode. She also was an art department assistant. So she was an assistant on a production in the art department. And then when a job opened up in as a writer's PA, she, because a lot of those jobs don't go to message boards, they don't go to, you are not going to find them on the UTA job list. It goes through internal sources. She was the first one to find out about it, got the job and moved her way in that way. So you can definitely take, if you can get an industry job at all, it's probably wise because you're going to make, um, as Joe said, con- contacts and connections and, and who knows where that can lead. Um, anyway, so I just want to throw that out there for those. Totally agree. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Uh, Tracy Law, as someone working on getting back into writing, this has been very informative. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tracy. Uh, do you have any suggestions on finding a writing partner as someone who had a writing partner? Yeah. Um, finding one, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh... Twitter is is you know like 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 fandom a double edged sword. It's, right. it's it's both wonderful and and terrible. But I mean that's one way to sort of connect with people. You know, find someone with a like interest, find other writers, and and you know make that initial uh, connection. Uh, my writing partner actually I, I met in a college creative writing course. Oh, very cool. And um, and we ended up actually. Uh, co-writing a, a, a feature, uh, like a spec feature that ended up getting us sub, you know, some notice mm-hmm. and, and our, our first few gigs. And, and um, you know, it's, it's a very different uh, approach, obviously. I mean, when we first started writing, we would write in the same room and we would like, you know, sort of bounce the dialogue back mm-hmm. and forth between each other. And then as things got busier on Stargate, we would uh, pitch the script back and forth. I'd write like the first act and pitch it back to him. He would rewrite it, send you know, write the second act and, and and so on. And then as we grew even busier, we would just start to write our script separately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it really depends on, on you as a writer. Um, I now prefer to write solo. Um, I've done the, the, the co-writing thing and it was, it was, it was fine. It was fun. And then, you know, a, a co-writer will bring something, very different to the table, which is always great. Um, but you also have to, you know, split, split those script fees, which, uh, you know. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And actually, I think in the tra- back in the day, I think in a writing class or, you know, from some mutual interesting like film festivals where you meet other mm-hmm. film files or whatever was a common way. But now it seems like it's so easy. Like you had mentioned Twitter. You could probably go to yeah. Reddit like either TV writing Reddit or yeah. screenwriting Reddit. Um, yeah. We have a Discord channel. I think a lot of, there's a number of different writing Discord channels. You can just pop in and, and start chatting and, and look for a writing mm-hmm. partner. Uh, I, I think that there are lots of people out there also looking for writing partners and it's just coming. It's probably like dating though. Uh, you'll probably find a lot of people who are willing to give it a shot and then finding mm-hmm. that right match so that it lasts and is yeah. productive and not one person either doing more of the work and the other person just kind of, gliding along or people who two mm. different ideas that personalities don't match and and 
but uh, yeah, there's this. I think a lot of opportunities. But we do have a Discord channel. You can find the link at scriptsandscribes.com and, and come check it out. And uh, I don't know, maybe you can find a, a writing partner. You know, there. There's lots of different opportunities. I think nowadays more so than ever before. Um, uh, Mookie says, "What modern sci-fi do you watch? Do you like the Star Trek or Star Wars shows on the streaming platforms?" You know, it's funny, whenever I go to LA, people ask me, what are you watching? Mm -hmm. And I often say nothing because when I'm in production, uh, I'm just too busy. And uh, now when I'm in develop, I'm I'm busy. You know, I have to say, I I love Star Wars as a kid. Uh, You know, like I said, I I watched the the first Star Wars, I think like 17 or 18 times. And then I watched um, Empire Strikes, uh, yeah, Empire Strikes Back and loved it. And then... I watched uh, Return of the Jedi, and I hated it so much that I just kind of got off the uh, those Ewoks ruined it for me. <laughs> uh, so I'm not I'm not a, a big Star Wars fan. Not not to the point like a lot, like a lot of like very strident Star Wars fans who are very critical of the directions the series has taken. It's just it's just not for me. Um, you know, in terms of Star Trek, I haven't checked out any of the new stuff. I uh, I uh, you know obviously I watched the uh, the classic, the original, and uh, and um, uh, Actually, Voyager and uh, and Deep Space Nine did not watch uh, Next Gen, believe it or not. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then in terms of sort of you know current sci-fi, to be honest with you, the sci-fi I watch right now is is all in anime, uh, mm. just because you know I'm, uh, I'm 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 trying to sort of learn Japanese, and uh, sort of in my mind, my wife is laughing now. She's Japanese. Uh, you know, it, it. You know, I'm 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 watching sci-fi, but I'm also hopefully getting a handle on uh, on the language as well. There's just finished an anime called Eighty Six, hmm. uh, and uh, you know, there's some some of the you know writing being done in in anime is uh, just kind of mind blowing. I think. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, it, there's so much material there. <clears throat> yeah. It's like really, a gold mine. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned that uh, my wife is Caucasian. She was born in Virginia, and she mm-hmm. actually started to learn a little Japanese. I don't speak any Japanese, so she speaks more Japanese than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty funny that way. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Uh, Alec expanded on his question uh, about mm-hmm. Moss uh, and the mining okay. planet, saying, uh, I meant what would he have done about being expected to kill the miners? Um, well, that's a good question. I don't, you know, I mean, it's hard to sort of answer that question because basically it never happened. Um, I think he probably would have killed Boone and then maybe would have tried to stop them hmm. and ended up dead. Uh, let's see here. Kenneth Green says, I've not seen this question being asked. Joe, did you always know you wanted to write back in school days? I did. I did. I remember when I was a kid growing up, I, people would ask me, what did you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I wanted to be a writer. And my mother would tell me, well, I'm, no one makes a living as a writer. You can't, be a, you can't be a writer. I mean, you can be, maybe you can be a lawyer and you can write on a side, or maybe you can be a journalist. You know, that, that's a writer right. who, you know, and I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And, uh, and, um, and, and, you know, then I, I did make a living writing and, uh, my, my my parents were very surprised, very surprised, very proud. Yeah, eventually, no, that's but good. you know, very surprised. Yeah, nice. Uh, 
Let's see here. Uh, Mookie says, you seem to be an optimist and a realist, which is a good combination for a showrunner. Thank you. That's true. Uh, thanks for sharing your time and some insights. What are some good characteristics you like to see in a writer? I guess other than the fact that don't be crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think a writer can have three different uh, areas of strength. Hmm. Uh, the first is... I think um, obviously writing, being good on the page. Mm -hmm. The other one is kind of personality, um, you know, being great uh, at pitching, for instance, uh, being able to sell. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third is being uh, good in the room, being able to come up with idea, generating ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I, I mean, and, and to be honest with you, not all writers are good at all three. I think I'm great on the page. I think I'm great at generating ideas. I think my weak link is is pitching. Mm. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, um, just because I'm, I'm I'm you know I'm not as 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 great a salesperson as, as a lot of other writers. Um, so for for me, you know I like obviously someone who's affable in the room, someone who can generate ideas in the room. Uh, and, and obviously someone who, who just delivers a solid first draft. And, you know, any first draft is going to sort of require changes for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, I, I just kind of hope that that writer will get as close to uh, what will be the final product as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Gap Stargate says, uh, Joe, can you explain block shooting and how it relates to the script that you may or may not be using? Um, well, block shooting, for instance, is, is a, um, block shooting, um, for instance, on a Utopia Falls, um, block shooting is often a, a cost saving measure, uh, in that, you're shooting sometimes two, sometimes more episodes simultaneously. So rather than, let's say, like we did on Stargate, like we did on Dark Matter, we would prep one single episode and we would shoot that episode over the course of whatever, seven or eight days, um, obviously like out of sequence, you know, we would go shoot, you know, in the park and we get all the park scenes a shot or, or we would shoot on, you know, on, you know, so on location for those two days and on our standing sets for, for five days. When you're block shooting, you're looking, you're taking the, these multiple scripts and you're scheduling them as one big script. Uh, and so for instance, if, uh, you know, you're going to be, have all your, standing sets uh, shot out over the course of, let's say, four or five days. If there's a location you'll be shooting uh, in over the course of, of those, let's say, three episodes in the park, you're going to basically shoot those scenes over the course of two days. Again, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a cost-saving measure. We did it on Utopia Falls. I don't love it. I really don't love it just because um, I find it's a headache and it can be a little confusing for cast and crew. Uh, but I have a so, really good uh, script coordinator. I don't, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. Right. Unless, uh, a script supervisor. You know, right. yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unless you're really looking to save a buck. Right, right. Uh, let's see here. Um, 
Uh, oh, uh, Gap Target also. Question. Can you explain? Oh, no, we already asked, asked that one. Uh, let's see. Uh, Alec Brownie says, when one fa- uh, faked his death, did he artic- or anticipate that Van Hooven was going to hire an assassin before the day was over even? Or did he hire Corso himself without the latter knowing? He hired Corso himself. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Um, it's a question you were probably wondering yourself, right, Kevin? Right. Uh, <laughs> I knew it. I had a feeling. Uh, I do have a question for you, though, that I think yeah. is, is, is incredibly important. So do you mm-hmm. get recognized more for being the creator and showrunner of Dark Matter or as the Donuts guy from your episode on Stargate SG-1? <laughs> and follow-up, will you be reprising your role as Donut guy, uh, Donuts guy on uh, any future uh, series that you have planned? Man, that takes me back. So that was our... Was that for- no, that was our hundredth episode. We for Stargate, we did a, a, an episode called Wormhole Extreme, where mm-hmm. we poked fun at ourselves by uh, creating a sci-fi show within our sci-fi show, and a lot of the production personnel had uh, cameos, and I had a cameo as a grip. Uh, you know, I'm a grip because I'm wearing a brown vest and a a, a, a lime shirt, and I approached the craft service table and asked for donuts and uh, Tilk, one of our uh, uh, regular characters informs me that uh, we're out of donuts, and uh, and I'm outraged. And, and I think my line was something like, um, uh, "Hey, what happened to all, uh, what happened to all the donuts?" And he says, "Whatever, we don't have any more." And I was like, "We're going to get any more?" And then he dismisses me. Um, so uh, you know, I I don't get recognized. In fact, I I rarely ever get recognized online. Yes, uh, never out on the street. Although the, sometimes it does happen, and it's kind of crazy. Uh, and strange, I, mean, I was in Montreal actually visiting family once and it was like 9 p.m. We we're on a street corner, you know, waiting for like the light to turn red and we crossed and there was a woman on the other side of the street and she was like, are you Joseph Malazzi? And that was a bit crazy because I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I don't put in many and, and this was actually like, I think like eight years ago or nine years ago, um, uh, you know, before I sort of, I, I, I really built up my social media presence. Um, so occasionally it does happen. It's kind of funny, but uh, never for the donuts guy, though, huh? Never for the donuts guy. <laughs> um, so we're getting close to the ninety-minute mark. So we've got a couple of last questions here. So yeah, if you sure. have questions, drop them in. Um, let's see, Kenneth Green. To me, one of the secrets of a great show is a cast that just gets or gels. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. They just like each other and have a ball, as in SG One and SGA. What's it like that with the Dark Matter cast? It actually, I don't think I've ever worked with a tighter cast. They were like really good friends. They would get together every week and go play ping pong at this place called Spin. Um, You know, for the first season, I lived in the same building as Roger Cross, who played six, and Jodel Ferland, who played five, and and, uh, Lauren Bancroft Wilson, who was our visual effects supervisor. And every Sunday, they would come over, like come up to our place, and I would make bourbon milkshakes, and we would watch Walking Dead. Um, so, I mean, I recently did a, something called a, a kind of Dark Matter Mondays with the, the gang at the, uh, Orville Nation, uh, another kind of a, a video stream, a YouTube stream. And we go over every episode, every, uh, every a new episode every week. And I got, I brought in like production uh, designers and, and crew and cast and directors. In fact, actually, all the cast made an appearance uh, mm-hmm. because I'm still pretty tight with them and I will 
text with them and 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 keep up the date with them and you know hope you know you know if the time comes when i get a green light for a, a uh, dark matter mini series they'll all make themselves available uh but they were a very tight tight crew and you you could actually feel the kind of the, the kind of the on-screen chemistry i think yeah no that's great um and let's see here gap stargate what What's one of the biggest mistakes writers make when trying to pitch an executive or studio? You know, simple things, I think, um, that can be addressed, like watching the show. Uh, we, I remember on, uh, you know, one, one of the pitch I remember most uh, working on SG-1 was uh, a woman who came in and, and pitched uh, some ideas. And I think her idea was, uh, um, uh, SGI, she prefers to the, to the team as SGI instead of SG-1. Uh, I mean, the show is called Stargate SG-1 uh, for starters. And then she says, you know, and and she calls him Tialk instead of Tealk, like our main character, um, ends up like stepping through the, the gate and being caught in uh, a dimension between, I don't know, India and Pakistan, trying to avert a war. And, and I was like, well, this, the Stargate doesn't work like that. I mean, that's A, that's not the name of our show. That's not the name of our main character. Right. And the sh you know the mechanics of the show don't work that way. So I mean, if she'd watched like an episode, one episode, mm. uh, she would have known. Right. But clearly she didn't. So that was very odd. But that's an extreme case, an extreme example. Um, you know, I always like uh, writers. If you're going to pitch, like um, I say, three ideas is usually solid. Something with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Again, mm -hmm. I remember another writer who came in uh, on Stargate and he pitched us, which turned out to be actually a a, a, a Stargate, a, a Star Trek episode in in in, in retrospect, uh, where characters start disappearing from. I think it was Stargate Atlantis, hmm. and a character, you know, crews start disappearing. They don't know where what's going on, and you know, the mystery builds, and 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 we get to the end of the pitch, and we're like, what? Well, what's the answer? Why? Why? Why is this happening? He was like, oh, I don't know. I thought. He just came up with the idea. You guys would come up with the with the ending, and and I think Martin Garrow uh, uh, of uh, Blind Spot fame was like, actually, you know, that's what we pay you for. So you really need to come in with a great concept, a great hook, but the beginning, middle, and an end. It's the you know landing those endings that that are very tough. Right. And again, it seems very simple and straightforward, but you know, from my experience, there have been writers who have uh, you know missed you know. Right. Missed the boat in that respect. Right. The, the whole, oh, yeah, this guy walks into a room and then yada, 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 and chaos yeah. ensues. Well, oh, what, yeah. what's also, that yada, yada, yada part? Yeah. Also, another thing to keep keep in mind is the show's budget. Mm. Um, even though we had a healthy budget on, on Stargate, sometimes people would come in and pitch us uh, story ideas that were unproducible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're going to produce uh, pitch an unproducible idea, you come across as kind of amateurish. Right. So that's uh, something to avoid as well. How about bottle episodes? Are those good to pitch? Those actually, those are fine to pitch. If you come up with an interesting bottle episode, I mean, the classic is obviously the time loop episode. Mm. Uh, you know, on, on Dark Matter, um, I knew I wanted to do a time loop episode. And and uh, and just like Stargate, Paul and I wrote the time loop episode, Window of Opportunity. It turned out to be like the fan favorite over like 300 episodes on Dark Matter, even though we did a, a more modest 39 episodes, that episode was a fan favorite, yet it was a bottle episode. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, bottle, bottle episodes can be great because they can be sort of more character driven. There's opportunities for humor. You just got to find the right hook. 
Right. Absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Alec Brownie uh, said, when you said on your blog that one would have returned as an ally in season four and presumably season five, uh, that does mean helping from his position as head of the uh, Corlatic rather Corlatic, than yes. being on the ship. Correct. Question. Correct. There you go. Um, <laughs> so uh, on that note, uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, Joe. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was a great mix sometimes. of questions, both uh, yeah. fan <laughs> questions and yeah. writer questions, some yeah. of combination thereof. Uh, be sure to follow Joe on Twitter if you're not already, uh, at Baron Destructo. We'll have the link below. Uh, what's uh, the link to your website is it josephmalazzi.com yeah okay yeah, just josephmalazzi.com so go to josephmalazzi.com i'm sure i've seen it uh let's see i just wanted to make sure i didn't there was no uh josephmalazzi.net or something like that that i was there is actually a josephmalazzi.net oh, is really? my is my professional page oh there you, you go check that out it's very interesting okay That's my uh credits there you go nice, beautifully designed but uh it, you know my blog is on josephmalazzi.com and otherwise i mean just come and find me on twitter it's one thing i always tell people mm -hmm. is you know, it's so much about making connections. So get on Twitter. Absolutely. And and just make connections and, 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 and you know, converse with other professionals and, uh, and, you know, hopefully that'll, you know, help. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's absolutely true because uh, it is all about, you know, relationships. Yeah, you know. exactly. So, um, so thank you again for being here today joe i really appreciate your time you can just stick around for just one minute yep. uh and for everyone there thank you for spending part of your saturday for us with us and joining us hopefully we see you next saturday uh same time 11 a.m and we will see you next time 